Romans chapter 15. Now, remember, back in 1227, I don't think anybody's that old, not here, um, Stephen Langton broke down the chapters of the Bible. And so when he did that, he didn't always do it the best it could have been done. And so it doesn't mean there's errors in the Bible because we don't say the chapters and the verses um, are anointed as long as we all agree on them. And so we do. And so chapter 15, verse 1, we're all looking at the same sentence, the same line of Scripture. However, these next three, some think even as far as seven verses, really tie into the topic previous and then later starts a new topic. And so just remember that although they were intending, the chapters were intending to break up topics. And so you would know, oh, we're going into a different topic now in the letter. Uh, that was the intention. It didn't always happen. It doesn't always happen. And so here in chapter 15, verse 1, is really carrying on to what the topic in chapter 14, what we are studying on, the weaker brethren and those who have various convictions. And so he says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now he studied in the last few weeks out of chapter 14, where again, don't let your good be spoken evil of. Don't stumble that brother in whom Christ died for with your liberty. And now he's really giving the conclusion of which he sort of already talked about, but now he's just saying very plainly, as a principle, as a rule. Before in chapter 14, he sort of hinted around saying, let it come from your heart. So he was trying to get you to see the point. And the point was, is yeah, I have that liberty, but out of love, I really shouldn't use my liberty because there's some that could be stumbled by my liberty. But finally now, he's just coming down and saying it plainly. You who are strong ought to bear with the scruples, not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor, referring to a fellow believer, for his good, not for our good, but for our neighbor, for our fellow believer's good, leading to edification. So we shouldn't be saying, well, what pleases my flesh? What pleases my body? What causes me to be the most comfortable and the most satisfied in my body? That shouldn't be what I'm about. What I should be about is what is going to build up my fellow believer. That is the issue. What's most important for them? And if you're thinking otherwise, you need to change your thinking. And that's why here at the church, I say if you're in leadership here at the church, you don't drink. And some, from time to time, somebody who wants to be in leadership, and we just say, hey, just don't do it, period. Well, you know, I'm from European descent. And, you know... Uh, over in Europe, you know, it's no big deal to have a glass of wine with your meal. Well, sorry. You're not in Europe. You're in America. It doesn't really matter what your descent is. You're going to stumble the weaker brethren. Don't do it. Well, I, I just can't handle it. Well, you're not going to be in leadership here then. Sorry. Because, not because we're legalistic, not because we have this law, but because they've not yet matured in the Lord where they really need to mature. What do you mean? A person who's a home fellowship leader, a person who's in leadership in the church, should already have come to that place as a servant that says, 
I am here for you, not for me. I'm here. I, God has brought me to the place to live my life in a way that I'm other-centered, not self-centered. And in being other-centered, my heart, my life is to see you built up and strengthened. That's what I'm about. As Paul says there, flip over if you would to 2 Timothy chapter 2. There he says in verse 10, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul is saying, hey, everything I do, my life is about the elect and their salvation. And not just their salvation, but for their growth in the Lord. And so again, yeah, it would be nice to be able to have a glass of wine for dinner. That's the way my parents always did it, and I've enjoyed that in the past. But more importantly, more importantly, I want the brothers and the sisters in the Lord to grow. And if they can't hear what I'm teaching because they're stumbled over the way I'm living, then I'm really cutting off my nose to spite my face. I'm really saying, well, I'm going to have my liberty, and if you can't handle it, that's your problem. No, that's not the heart of a servant of God. That's not the heart of one who wants to see others grow in the Lord. They're willing to say, I'm going to deny myself, give up my liberty for you because I love you. And it's not a burden to me. It's not this big, horrible, man, I've got to sacrifice everything for this stinking church. It's not the attitude of, a, of one who's matured spiritually. The one who matured spiritually says, oh, I, what's that matter? We're going to be with the Lord. All this is going to burn. I'm going to be in my brand new body on earth for a thousand years and in heaven for all of eternity. What, what's, what's it matter what I drink? It gives a rip. It's no big deal. It's stupid to even think about it. And so again, it's just that mature outlook. They're heavenly minded. They're their attitudes on the things of above where Christ is seated. As a side note, as a side note, remember that some of the weaker brethren may be your own kids, and you don't know it yet. Some of you dads out there are watching stuff on TV and drinking and smoking and doing other things that really could be stumbling. I remember James Dobson, he used a wonderful example as he was one day watching TV and he was really into this cowboy show and his son was there with him and all of a sudden this cowboy goes off and starts cursing this other cowboy out and James Dobson, he's, you know, we sort of get desensitized to those things. And he's just watching, you know, where the next action's going to come. And he feels the side of his head burning. And he looks over and his son's staring at him. And his son was basically saying, wondering, how do we handle these kind of situations in life, Dad? Should it bother us that God's used name in vain? What, what does a Christian do in these type of scenarios? And then he quickly changed the channel. And his son 
sort of just his countenance changed in a happy way, and he just went back to playing on the floor. He was, he was learning, really, what is a Christian life to be about. And he realized that, yes, I, I've got to be careful because I'm setting patterns in my kids, whether I realize it or not, by maybe my loose living. Maybe I need to tighten things up. And so here you are. You have no problem drinking a couple beers, watching a football game. But later on, you see, you find out your son is a weaker brother and he can't just stop after a couple of beers. And then you're weeping over the fact that he's an alcoholic or graduates to harder stuff, uh, past alcohol and gets into drugs, which is incredibly common. I think it's in America now, I heard a statistic the other day, it was something outrageous. I, I can't remember what it was, but it was something like one in 20 people in America will at some point in their life struggle with alcoholism. Something outrageous like that. I was just like, wow. Do, do you know offhand, Glenn, what it is? No? So, again, we have to stop and, and really realize I may be plotting a course that I can make it through okay, but it may sink the ships behind me. So I picture myself in this sailboat, this one-man sailboat, and I picture my wife and her one-woman sailboat, and my kids and their one-person sailboats behind me. And I'm navigating a course. Is the course a tough course where people sink sometimes? Or am I out away from the obstacles where people get caught up sometimes? You see, I want to just car I want to chart a course that anybody can do. I want to chart a course that, hey, just follow me. There's there's no concern or worries if you're in my footsteps. True story of a man who got depressed on Thanksgiving for whatever reason, sitting around the Family was in one room, he was in the next, and, and he thought, man, I'm going to just go. I'm just going to go get drunk. And he, there was a liquor store down the street, not too terribly far. And uh, he was plodding through the snow that was rather thick. And he was taking his steps and sinking and taking his steps and compacting the, the snow as he was heading. And he was about halfway down the liquor store, and here's something behind him, and he turned around and there was his five-year-old son coming up behind him, stepping in his steps. And the little boy looked up and saw Dad and thought he'd be proud of him, you see, because he had navigated the course and he had said, Dad, I'm just stepping where you step. And it just pierced him through because he realized, you're right. Right now, I'm plotting a course that's helping you walk and make it through the snow, but someday you may be 25 stepping where I step into alcoholism. And so it pierced his heart and he picked up his son and went home. And I think we just need to realize that it's life, life is easy to move forward, but it's hard to go backwards. It's easy to live however we want in our liberty, but it's hard to go back and fix the things that we've messed people up with. And so in the same way, when 
I'm out there in the sailboat and all the other sailboats are behind me. I don't want to be swerving in close to these rocks and, you know, oh, I know how to, oh, boy, that was a close one. I made it by a couple of inches and, and I make it through just fine. But I look back and there's one of my kids, their sailboat's broken up and they're trying to limp, make it through. There's another one who's in his life vest in the water treading. Well, I don't want that. I want everybody to, to make it without being scratched. And the best way I can do is just give an example of integrity, of honesty, of, of godliness, of discipline. One pastor was telling a story, John Corson, how his dad was a banker. And the bank gave them a car to go back and forth to work and to go errands wherever they needed to go. But yet his friend, a good friend of his dad, worked at the same bank and also had a car and had the same job. And it was always a nice car they would give them because the bank, when they went out to various business appointments, didn't want them driving up in some piece of junk. And, but the dad, when he came home at nights, the car was parked in the garage and it stayed there. On weekends, the car was parked and it stayed there. And he said, come on, dad, we don't want to take our old car. Let's take your good bank car, you know. His dad would say, no, that's for the bank. That's for business use only. But, but old so-and-so, you know, my friend, his daddy drives the car all over the place, everywhere. And, and, and the banks never said anything. They don't care. He goes, well, it's business use only. That's what they told us. That's what I'm going to do. And that, I'm not going to drive even a half a block if it's not for business. And how that put such a thought, a deep impression of integrity upon his heart upon his mind, where his friend, basically his dad was conveying to him, if you can get away with it, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Lighten up, loosen up. It's, but yet there's just certain, certain things we want to instill within our kids that no, we don't compromise. No, we're people of honesty, of integrity, of forthrightness. So, let us live a life. Let us navigate a course. Let us walk a step that even the weakest of brothers, the weakest of sisters, could follow our example and do well. Amen? Amen. Amen. So be it, Lord. This is exactly what Christ did for us. Look in verse 3. For even Christ did not please Himself. You think about that. What liberty Christ could have had, but he didn't. People say, well, he drank. They called him a glutton. They called him a, a drunkard. He was not a drunkard. He was not a glutton in any way, shape, or form. They said that of him. Man's wicked. Man has a hard heart. Jesus was perfect, but yet his own brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus was perfect, but his own town in which he grew up with him, they were offended at his words and tried to throw him off a cliff. Jesus wasn't living a bad life. It's just men's heart were hard and wicked. That's why they were offended at him and tried to throw him off a cliff. That's why his own brothers didn't believe in him. It wasn't that he didn't live a perfect life. And that's why they called him a tax collector and, glut and a, a, excuse me, a glutton and a drunkard. He did not gorge himself. He did not drink heavily at all. But the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now listen to this. Think about this just a minute. The reproaches of those who reproached you 
fell on me. In other words, the weaknesses, the sins, the scruples of all men came upon him. Now in verse 4, for whatever things were written before were written for, listen, our learning, that we through the patience, the persistence, and the comfort, both of those things, persistence and comfort of the Scriptures, might we might have hope. Now, may the God of patience, God is the God of patience. He's a very, very patient God. And He's also the God of comforts. Is 2 Corinthians 1, the God of all comforts. Grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus, or equals to the way Christ Jesus would have done. So we have these scenarios in the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, to show us God, to show us His nature, to show us how He wants us to think towards our brothers. Giving them preference over ourselves. We look at Abraham. And we see how he was the man whom God had called, God had chosen, God had blessed. And Lot, because he was hanging around Abraham, was blessed with the residue of what Abraham was blessed with. But when their flocks and their herds got too great, and their servants were fighting with one another, Abraham came to Lot, and he said, Choose the way, you will go, and I will choose the other. He gave him preference. He could have said, now look, Lot, you're really nothing. The only reason you're blessed is because of me. Everything you have is because of me. Because God's hand of blessing is upon my life. And because God's hand of blessings on my life, you've been blessed because you've been in my shadow. But listen, this is getting too much. Now, I want you to go that direction because this is the lush, beautiful, wonderful area and I want the best since I'm God's man, and I'm the guy that God's hand of blessings upon, I want the best over here for me. Now you just sort of go that way and get out of my way. You see, that, that's the heart of this world. Jesus says, look at the world. They lord it over one another. Not so with you. Those who are greatest among you be the servant of all. And so Abraham gave him preference. He gave him honor. He said, whichever, you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Whichever direction you go, I will go the opposite direction. And Lot, not having that spirit of grace, not having that spirit of honor. You see, Lot should have said, you're right. And all I want is to be with you. I'm going to get rid. I'm just going to go down there and sell everything I have. Get rid of it all. I don't want to possess anything. I'll just say, give it away. And just, I just want to come and just be there next to you, Abraham, and be your servant. I want to be your right arm. Had Lot had that spirit of Christ, had he realized what God was doing, he would have sold everything and been Abraham's right-hand man, and truly he would have been a blessed, blessed, blessed man. But he didn't have that spirit about him. Thus, Lot lost everything. But Abraham, in the spirit of Christ, continued to go the other direction, the drier, the immediate desert area, the immediate barren area, the immediate worthless area. But because he chose his brother's well-being over his own well-being, 
in the end, he was far more blessed. Moses, another example of a man who was soaring to be the emperor of the greatest kingdom of the time. There, as he could have been the Pharaoh of Egypt. But nevertheless, it said he would rather go suffer hardship for the people of God, with the people of God, rather than to continue to have the pleasures of Egypt. So in the immediate, you see, Moses missed out on the immediate glory, the immediate prestige, the immediate power, the immediate riches, because he preferred his brothers. He preferred to be there with them, to strengthen them, to help them, than to soak in his pleasures and his comforts. In the immediate, Moses lost. Ultimately, Moses gained as he became the meekest man on all the earth. We see the same thing with King David. As God's hand of anointing was upon him, and yet when Saul would start throwing spears, David, who was a warrior, Saul had killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David was ten times the warrior that Saul was. David was younger, Saul was older. Truly he could have taken the spear and ran it through Saul. Saul started the fight. I just ended it. Nobody could have faulted David. Not only that, but Jonathan loved David as his own life. Saul's son preferred David. He, he would have sided with David. David's daughter loved David. His own daughter, Saul's daughter, would have sided with David. There's two of the main kids would have been behind David in a battle between David and his father. The soldiers, no doubt, had lost tremendous respect for Saul. When there, the tallest, the biggest, the most experienced warrior of the Philistines, Goliath, came out to challenge their biggest, strongest, most experienced warrior, which obviously to everybody was Saul. Saul was a head and shoulders taller than anybody in Israel. There's only one man who had armor. That was Saul. Nobody else had armor. Armor to armor, height to height, experience to experience. But yet Saul cowered in his tent. And not only that, but when a young boy who had no experience in battle, who could not, Saul, to try to ease his own guilt, tried to get him to wear his armor. And this young teenage boy said, no, I just, it's too big for me because Saul was a big man, custom made. But also he was inexperienced with it. And Saul, this coward, let this little boy go down with a slingshot. What kind of man would have allowed that scenario? What kind of coward he must have been? And no doubt Israel knew it and saw it. And so the armies of Israel would have been behind David. And then the people, the people loved David more than Saul. They sang songs. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. The people, the army, Saul's family. David was truly a man who was tempted. But yet, he fled from Saul. Now God tests the righteous, it says in Psalm 7. The Lord tests our hearts and our souls. The Lord tests us. And there you remember in the cave, Saul came in out of the thousands of caves there in Gedi. He picked the very cave. 
in which David and his men had hid. And the men are going, this is God. Can't you? I mean, what are the odds of this happening? But David wouldn't kill him. Had he came out with Saul's head on the end of his spear as he had had Goliath's head, they, they would have not challenged David's ascent to the throne. And then God challenged him again later when him and one of his chief soldiers go down in the midst of the camp. And there God had put a supernatural strength upon them all. And, and he said, please, let me just ram him through with the spear. And David said, no way, we won't touch him. That little detour in the caves was 14 years. David lived in the caves with his 500, 600 men, went from 400, 600 men, plus their families. Man, that would have been trying. He finally just went on down to the land of Philistines, lived there for a year. Then he came back and lived in the promised land for seven years in a civil battle. It was a 22 year, 22 and a half year, long ways around when he could have had a shortcut of throwing the spear back at Saul, but he didn't. So for 22 years, he got the short end of the stick. For 22 years, he had a hard, long trial. What does it say there again? The patience. These scriptures are written that we might learn the patience. That we might learn how to be patient. And then we see how Jesus was with us. How Jesus has been so patient with us. How Jesus lost on this earth. A man acquainted with grief at the age of 30. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. They didn't know exactly. He was somewhere between 30 and 50. They knew he wasn't over 50, but he could have been somewhere around 50, although he was only 30 years old. He looked much older because he was acquainted with grief and sorrow. And there they... He was a man who went through continual hardship, ultimately a beating that he was not worthy of, and a crucifixion that he was an innocent, innocent man. But yet he lost. Why? So that we could gain. This is the heart of Jesus Christ. And this is the heart that needs to be in every single one of us. There's a wonderful story of R.C. Chapman, a man who was a pastor in a church in Barnstable. The church was a very contentious group of people. And there... They had ran three pastors out in a matter of 18 months. And this young man went there and they had various beliefs and they had just a lot of divisions amongst themselves. But yet he just patiently, lovingly tried to get them to see loving, preferring one another is more important than your doctrinal view at this moment, at your peripheral view on they were fighting over baptism mainly. Later on, it was a fight over end times, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And he just said, look, let's, let's focus on the fact that Christ died for us and that there's people in the world going to hell and we need to get our act together as a body of believers. But yet they constantly fought. And finally, after a number of years, they said to him, we want you out of here. And we want everybody who believes like you out of here, which was almost the entire church. It was just a handful of very contentious people, and they said, we want you to leave. 
So here was a church of several hundreds of people and only a handful of people. And they looked at the legal documents and they had every right to kick that handful of people out of the church. But yet, as he just looked at the heart of Christ, he just said, let's prefer them. And he wrote all of the documents over to the handful of contentious people and gave them the building and they themselves went to meet in the park. A group of several hundred people. And then, after some time, they had enough money to buy a piece of property right down the street from his house and he went and he bought the property and signed, sealed, and delivered and an Episcopal church came and said, well, we had had our sights set, our eyes set on that site. We were hoping to build there someday. He ripped up the document and said, the property's yours. He just preferred his brother and then years later, from meeting from place to place, struggling, they finally got another property and it was a beautiful property and God blessed them tremendously. But his heart was is that if you prefer your brother, you'll never lose. If you have that preference towards your brother. He used to preach outside downtown and this one particular grocer hated him and when he walked by, he would spit upon him. Year after year, this went by. He continued to preach and this grocer just despised him. And at one point in time, he had some relatives come and visit him from out of town and after spending a few days, he said, before we go, we want to buy you some groceries. And he said, well, only on one circumstance. If you'll go buy the groceries from this particular grocer. And his relatives, being relatively wealthy, knew that he would, they would buy a lot of groceries. And went down in this giant hall of groceries. And they said, uh, well, where do you want it delivered to? And he gave him the address and said to Robert C. Chapman and gave the address. And the grocer said, I, I think you went to the wrong grocery store. And he said, nope. This is very clearly the place he told us. As a matter of fact, he wouldn't let us buy the groceries anywhere else but this grocery store. And the man came bringing the groceries and he just broke down weeping there before R.C. Chapman, trying to understand why he would return such a blessing upon him when he had treated him so bad. And there he led him to the Lord and he became a wonderful man of God in the church. There's that heart, you see, where we lose. Think of Christ. What did he do? Christ died. Why? So you can live. And I'll tell you right now, there will not be life in any relationship you have until first there is a death. I don't care what the relationship, you have to die. Satan is too powerful. He has us in his palm. He, he is in control. And if you've been around long enough, you know every relationship. You go through that dark night of the soul. There's that time you look at your wife or look at your husband and you say, it's not that I don't love you anymore. I hate you. <laughs> you go through that time where you have your kids and just going, I cannot wait till you're 18. I want you out of here. I am, I, it's not I don't love you, I'm sick of you. I can't stand you. And those kids are going, you don't know how bad I want to be out of here. If you've had a friendship with somebody else, 
You've probably come. If you've been friends for any length of time, you've experienced the same thing. I'd rather not you be my friend, and I, I don't want you to be my friend, and take a hike. Although you've been in each other's life for decades, now it's just, I don't ever want to see or talk to you again. There's a real devil out there. He's out there to kill, steal, and destroy. Now, how's it going to end? It's not going to be victory until somebody dies. Well, I'll just wait for the other person to die. Well, a lot of people do that. A lot of divorces. A lot of broken families. A lot of broken friendships. But that's not the heart of Christ. Christ died. We need to follow in his footsteps. You must die. Literally die. I have to die to my, my, my pride says, no, I'm not, I'm innocent. Christ was innocent. Well, it's their fault. They're the ones who sinned. We are the ones who sinned. Christ never sinned. You see, it doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. You're wrong, believe me. Maybe not at this particular instant. Maybe not in this exactly situation. You're wrong. But believe me, you've been wrong a thousand times over. Maybe this time you are the right one in this. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's the straw that's breaking the camel's back. Whether you were right or not, it, your relationship is no longer going to exist if somebody doesn't die. And so you die. You, you go and you confess whatever you can come up with. I'm wrong. Well, I'm really not, believe me, you, you're wrong enough. Just confess some wrong. You'll be right. <laughs> well, I, I, I could have, you know, I, I wasn't kind. Yeah. Well, actually, I was in this situation. But there's a zillion times when you weren't kind. And you never confessed it. Confess it this time. You know, I, I should have not said that. Well, really, I think I, it was a good thing to say. But you've said so many stupid things and never confessed it. Just go ahead and confess it this time. <laughs> Just die. Now, when you die, remember there, you're going to hang for a while. It's not this, I shoot you and throw you in the grave. It's a long process, the whipping, the scourging, the walking with the patabulum on your back, and it's going to be a wearisome thing as you die, and then finally, you're nailed and you're hanging there. And they at that time. So I, I'm not saying it's going to be a nice, clean little thing. Well, okay, I'll just confess that I'm wrong and I'm sinful and that'll be all. No. The problem there is contention is because you're not dead. You need to die and stay dead. To see everybody is more important than yourself. To put everybody's interest before your own interest. We don't have to. Just again, the other day in the grocery store, I Went up, pulled up there, and some guy had stuck one thing there on the counter and ran away and did his shopping and came back and, hey, Dad, that guy's in front of you. So? I, I, I don't feel it. I'm dead. I, I don't feel it. But Dad, what are Let him tell him you're first. I, I'm dead. I don't feel it. But once you die and you're hanging on that cross, guess what? There's going to be a testing whether you're dead or not. The spear is going to come around and wham, jab you right in the side. And if you say, ouch, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> you never really died. 
But when the spear goes in and keeps going in and keeps going in until what? It pierces your heart. And you don't flinch. What do you do? You just let the blood and the water flow. The water of the cleansing. You see, our life is powerful. Our life in Christ, walking in His footsteps is powerful. And the water is going to flow, the cleansing. The blood is going to flow, the covering over the sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so the testing is going to come to see if you're really dead or not. And then we are dead. Now what's going to happen? As Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 5, So dying is present in me. Why? So life is in you. Let's look at that passage. Some of you look like you don't know exactly which one I'm talking about. Powerful passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting in verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body, what? The dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is working in us, but life in you. You got to die. In your marriage tonight, if you'll die, your marriage will come forth and have life. And in a couple of weeks, when the Spirit goes on your side, that's when the healing will take place. Why? Because now the blood, now the water, the full cleansing of Christ will be there as dying is present in you. So life will now be back in that marriage. Your kid has left. Call them and repent. Well, it was the kid's problem. Repent. You confess your sins. Die. And life will be back in that relationship. Whatever it is, if death will be manifest, life will be pumped back in. That's Christ. We prefer one another in love. That's the Old Testament scripture. We see the patience of Abraham. We see the patience of King David. How he could have ended it, but he didn't. He didn't throw spears. He came back out when Saul was hunting him. He came out after he cut off the little bit of his garment. And he repented. He goes, I'm so sorry I cut your garment, Saul. Father, he called out, Father. He said, is that you, David? He said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I cut your garment. Saul came out to kill him. Saul came out to unjustly kill a righteous man. But yet David repented over cutting his garment. I touched the Lord's anointed. I'm so sorry. David, don't apologize to him. He's the guilty guy. And when he did that, Saul said, Oh, David, I'm so wicked. I'm so evil. I played the life of a fool. 
Now I know, David, I know that you're a great man. And I know that you shall be king. Later on, Saul came back out with the spear. Is David really dead? There David had the opportunity to kill Saul again. And there he came out again and he spoke to Saul. My father, my father, what, what are you coming out to seek a flea for? Am I not just a dead dog? Why would you seek me? And he goes, I could have killed you. Here's your spear. Here's your water jug. And Saul repented again there and just said, Oh, David, you are so righteous. I am so wicked. Oh, man, I just see it so clearly right now. Again, it wasn't until by patience, years, 14 years in a cave, a year in the land of the Philistines, another seven years in civil war, that finally David came to the throne over all of Israel. Moses suffered with his people 40 years in the desert as he came out and he killed the Egyptian and he buried him. And man, surely everybody knows God's raised me up on this great leader, this political perfect opportunity to deliver the people. And, and the Hebrews disdained him. They said, what are you going to do? Kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? Oh no, this matter's known. And he fled and the Jews had no respect for him. For 40 years he's in the desert, dying and dying and dying until finally he was dead. The man who was more than willing to take over the people of Israel for God is now saying, I, I can't even talk. I, I'm not even a very good speaker. I'm an old man. I'm 80 years old. I don't have anything left to give and send somebody else. And he was dead. And he became the meekest man in the world. Die. Stay dead. It's going to take a long time. Bear with the scruples of the weaker brethren. I'll tell you what, guys. I've been pastoring now here 14 years. And there have been people that came into the church, supposedly got saved, and most of the time we thought they weren't saved. And if it were up to me, I would have damned them to hell. No problem. Just irritants, fleshly, divisive. Yet we just hung in there with them, continued to love them year after year, foolishness, year after year, difficulty. And then finally, one day, God broke them. God did that work in their heart. And what beautiful Christians they became. What wonderful Christians they became. It just takes patience sometimes with one another. Just to hang in there through those fleshly times, through those difficult times, through those struggling times, through those immature times, through those weak times. Is Christ not patient with us? Is God's mercy new every morning? In the same way, we need to continue to love as Christ. And this is what we see in the scriptures is the patience of these godly men and their comfort and in it, we have hope. There was a church split going on about 60 miles from R.C. Chapman. And there it was over a doctrinal issue that was again a peripheral issue. And the church split was going on and R.C. Chapman got these men together and, and 
the guy said, well, I gave it six months. I worked with this guy six months to try to change this. And R.C. Chapman said, if it had been me, it would have been six years. And he was telling the truth. Because on some of the issues in his church, in R.C. Chapman's church, that were he wanted to see baptism, everybody get baptized, but many people raised in the Anglican church had come out of it, but yet they still felt infant baptism was the way. Infant baptism nowhere in the Bible, but they held to that. And so he never pushed it. He never said, you've got, if you were baptized as an infant, you can't have communion, which is basically how the Anglican church was. And for years and years, these people just preached their infant baptism, and, you know, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to baptize my son, and that's the way it needs. And finally, it said, after 50 years, most of the dissenters finally died that then he finally changed it in the church. He waited 50 years. That's patience. But so often we, we want to push it now. We want to deal with it now. We want it to happen now. But that's not the Old Testament example. 40 years in the desert, 20 years, 22 years fleeing, uh, trying to work it out with the issue with Saul. Abraham wondered until he was 99 years old before he got Isaac. And so with Christ, we see his patience with us. So that now, reading back in Romans 15, verse 5, now may the God of patience and comfort grant to you, what? This like-mindedness towards one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, those who have different views, that it wouldn't matter on these peripheral issues. Major doctrinal issues, that's a whole other thing. But that we would like-minded. Now, again, I'm not talking about major doctrinal issues. Well, if you want to be a homosexual, you want to live in fornication, you know, we'll just link arms anyway. No. That's sin. The Bible's clear on that. That's an abomination before God. But if a brother smokes or drinks or dances or watches movies that you wouldn't prefer or does certain things that you think are carnal or ungodly, that shouldn't be doing it. Again, no, let's set those things aside. Although it may not be the best, although it may not be right, wait. How many times, guys, years later, after I spoke to them on an issue have come around and said, wow, only if I had saw what you were saying 10 years ago. How many times people have pointed things out to me? And I'm like, no, no, no way. And then years later going, man, that was such wisdom. I was such a fool not to have listened to him. But I'm so glad that they were patient. I'm so glad they were my friend. I'm so glad that they worked with me in other areas and not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And so there are some here tonight that are carnal. They're doing things they shouldn't do, and it's hindering their spiritual walk. I think it could cause devastation upon their families eventually. Definitely, they could be closer to the Lord than they are. But they're allowing these things into their life. That's not the way it should be. It's the way it is. Let's not judge them. Let God be their judge. But let's, with one heart and one mind, just link arm in arm and just 
praise the Lord and love one another. And when they start struggling, as they're living this carnal life, and they're doing these things they shouldn't be doing, and now they're starting to struggle with their kids, and, and you can see it's clear as day. They spent the last 10 years watching all this crud on TV, and now their kid is carnal and worldly and more of the world than he is of the church, more of the world and, and a love of the things of the world than he has a love for God. And now all of a sudden, he's this teenager and you're having all these struggles with him and, man, would you pray with me? I'm really struggling with my child. You know, this is going on and this is going on. And again, at that time, you'd love to say, well, I told you 10 years ago, dummy. <laughs> that No, no. You just say, man, that's tough. Let me pray with you. Let me ask God to bless and to heal and to touch some areas of your life. And, and again, to revisit, say, do you think now might be a good idea to change some of your habits of life and sort of bending things more this direction to see more fruit, you see? And then that gentleness and that love. I love that where it says that Jesus carries them in his bosom and gently carries those who are young. Just carry them. And to carry one another in our bosom gently as a shepherd would carry a sheep. That's the heart of Christ. And may that same mind, may that same mouth be in every one of us. Amen? Lord, we just believe in you. We thank you for your love and your goodness and your mercy. And, and Lord, we know we've got to encourage one another, provoke one another to love and good works, but at the same time, why we're provoking one another to love and good works, that we're not to judge the brother who won't be provoked. We've got to not criticize and speak evil and to put down, but to have that heart of love. Lord, let that heart be in us. Let that gentleness be in us. Let that mind be in us that's in Christ Jesus. And Lord, let us die. Let us die to ourselves, our own wants, our own desires, our own pleasures, that there might be life in our brothers and sisters around us. Be glorified, we ask, in Jesus' precious, precious holy name. We thank you and praise you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. God